So I'll get into the teaching of God's Word. We're back in the chronological journey through the Gospels. Hey, we're going to be here a while. If the Lord should tarry and not come back for His church, we'll just keep working our way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, trying to put mesh them together as they may have unfolded naturally in the history of Christ when He walked upon the earth for those three plus years of ministry. And we just finished two weeks ago the Sermon on the Mount, and that was Matthew chapters 5 through 7, pretty much stayed in that area of Scripture. And both Matthew and Luke, Luke covered the Sermon on the Mount a lot quicker than Matthew did, but they both ended with the same teaching by Jesus of Jesus talking about the importance of building our lives upon the rock. He was talking about the importance of building our lives upon him. And it was the last point of this great sermon that he did, and he explained both the wise and the unwise heard his words. So both believers and unbelievers heard the words that Jesus presented that day, but only the wise responded by building their houses, their lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, building upon the works of Christ, building their lives upon Christ himself. The unwise build their lives upon their own works. James said in James 2.18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now we do not teach a works Based salvation, meaning that we'll get to heaven and the Lord will ask, why should I let you in this place? And we would say, well, because of all the good that I've done. We don't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. What the Bible does teach, as James presents here in James 2.18, that works should be a natural byproduct of our faith, that we have works because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. It should be a natural byproduct of our faith. Once the Sermon on the Mount was completed, Jesus is on the move again. And today we're going to find him back in Capernaum, his home base, there in the uh, latter Galilean ministry or the year of popularity, as the theologians like to call it. And there Jesus... Uh, finds a man of great faith. And then he moves from Capernaum over to a city called Nain. And only here in the Gospels, or anywhere in the Bible for that matter, do we read of this city. And there the Lord does a great miracle the first time that he raises the dead. In Scripture it records three times that he raises people from the dead. And today we're going to learn about the first that he raised from the dead. And finally, two of John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they asked him a question. John the Baptist has been in prison for a while. And while he was in prison, he started wondering, Lord, are you the one or should we look for another? And we'll see how Jesus responded to that question. And I think sometimes... Though we may not be in prison, some might be who hear this broadcast, but I know everybody in here, we're not. Uh, Sometimes we wonder, Lord, and we have questions to to Jesus about what's going on in our world, what's going on in our lives, and, and we think, Lord, I didn't think it was supposed to be like this. And to hear the Lord's response. It would be encouraging for us today. So today we're looking at a message I entitled Great Faith from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. We're going to see a man with great faith in verses 1 through 10, a compassionate touch in verses 11 through 17, and a questioning believer in verses 18 through 23. So we're first going to meet a man with great faith We're going to take it from Luke chapter 7. We're going to stay in Luke. But Luke 7, 1 through 10. But it's also found in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. So two of the Gospels pick up this 
account in Jesus' life. And chapter 7 begins with this story of great faith that comes from the most unlikely person in Israel. So we begin reading in verses 1 and 2, a centurion's request, 1 through 3 actually. Now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So the Sermon on the Mounts has concluded. He went to Capernaum, the two areas not too far from one another. In verse 2, a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So Jesus arrived in his home base of Capernaum. This is where Jesus kind of set up his ministry of operation during that latter Galilean ministry or the year of popularity. By the end of this time, his popularity would begin to wane because he would begin to teach hard sayings about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And many people would turn and walk away, but that is not this time. Right now, he's just preached perhaps the greatest recorded sermon that we have in Scripture concerning him, the Sermon on the Mount. And now he arrives back in Capernaum where he has already done many wonderful miracles in that city. And there in that city was a Roman centurion that had a servant that was very dear to him who was sick. And so this Roman soldier sent the elders of the Jews to go ask Jesus to come and to heal his friend. By this time, this is an interesting thing. By this time, many of the religious rulers in Israel, they were convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. And yet because of their relationship with the centurion, they were willing to do what this man asked them to do, to go to the presence of Jesus and to make a request for him. So hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a moment. In 4 and 5, we find the elders plead for their friend And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So the Jewish elders begging Jesus earnestly, and they put a little effort into this for their friend, that Jesus should come and do this for him, Even though they may not have believed in Jesus, they could not deny the mighty works that he was doing. And they had seen the mighty works, and yet they still denied faith in Jesus Christ. The Word tells us later on in John 11, 47 and 48, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, this is right before they conspired together to put Jesus to death, What shall we do for this man works many signs? And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they were worried about their position. They were worried about their power. And though their eyes saw the mighty miracles of Jesus Christ, their heart denied that he could possibly be the Messiah. Now, we don't know about the elders here at Capernaum. In chapter 8, we'll meet Jairus, the head of the synagogue, who will also reach out to Jesus. He may have been among this group. He, at this point, could have been unbelieving, but because of the miracle that takes place here, he is willing to cry out to Jesus for his daughter who dies. We'll learn about that in Luke 8. So we can't read into scripture more than what it is giving us, but we do know that many of the religious rulers did not believe in Jesus. And I find this interesting because even if these men that came to Jesus believed or not, they were willing to come, one. And I think in our own circles, in our own life, we'll have people who, though they may not believe in Christ, when tragedy happens, they're willing to pray. They're willing to even pray to the Christ they do not believe in for a loved one or for a friend. 
And this could be the situation that we're seeing here. They testified of the centurion's worthiness, whose love for Israel was displayed by building them a synagogue. And it's obvious by this statement that this centurion was a God-fearer. He's one that feared the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he loved the people of Israel. He did great things for the people of Israel. How important it is to seek Jesus' help for others, especially our friends, our loved ones. In fact, important relationships can cause those who do not even believe to plead to Jesus on behalf of their friend or their loved one. Now, Matthew's account, he left out the interaction between Jewish, the Jewish elders and Jesus. He just left all of that out. So you go over to Matthew 8, 5 and 13. It seems that Jesus never even made contact with the centurion. If you read the account from Luke's gospel, it seems that the centurion never made contact with Jesus personally. In fact, he would later on say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And that's interesting because the Jewish leaders viewed him saying to Jesus, he is worthy. He's deserving of this. Why is he deserving? Because he loves our people and he's built us a synagogue. This synagogue uh, that is there at Capernaum today is not the synagogue of the time of Christ, but they do believe that the black basalt rock that lies as the foundation, so on top of the black basalt rock, there's black rock all over northern Israel because of some volcanic eruption that took place long, long time ago, but those boulders are everywhere and you see them piled up everywhere and it's a very hard stone. And they believe that that is the original foundation of the synagogue of the time of Christ that was torn down and rebuilt again at a later point. But that there is a synagogue that sits in the ruins of Capernaum today They've tilted up some things. They helped reconstruct it a little bit. There's no roof on it, but you can sit and worship in that place today. Lily and I were blessed to be able to sit in the ruins of this synagogue and hear the Word of God being taught. But it's my prayer that we would have a similar heart toward Israel. This centurion man, though he was not of the nation of Israel, loved the children of Israel, and he supported the children of Israel. And we can display our support for Israel by how we vote, by financial gifts or ministries that we might support that minister to the children of Israel, even by visiting Israel. I'll never forget when we were looking over at night, it was our first night in Jerusalem, we were looking over the city of Jerusalem, they took us to an outlook that we could see the city lights at night, and there was an elderly Jewish man who asked us in very broken English why we were there. And we explained that we had a love for Israel, wanted to come and see the place where Jesus walked. And he thanked us for supporting Israel. He was curious about all these Americans. What are you doing here? It's just like, we have a love for your people. And he thanked us for that. Six and seven, we find the centurion, though, sending word back to Jesus saying, I'm not worthy. Remember the Jewish elders? He is deserving. Now, it can be translated as worthy. Then Jesus went with them. So Jesus is making his way to the centurion's house. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. So the Jews had a perception of this man that his good works, he is worthy. The man himself had his own perception and said, Lord, I'm not worthy. He judged himself unworthy that Jesus should even come to his house. And we should all judge ourselves in that sense that all are unworthy to have Jesus enter our homes or enter our lives 
unworthy to stand in his presence. Yet this is the blessed gift of our salvation. Though we are undeserving, though we are unworthy, Jesus, through his work on the cross, desires to enter in, into our lives, into our homes. He desires not only to enter into our lives, but one day to allow us to stand in his presence. And how do we do that? It's through humility. The centurion has it right. I'm not worthy. James 4.10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We're not worthy. It's through humility that we come to the Lord. In John 14.23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus desires to come to make his home in our lives. But we have to come humbly through humility, through belief in Jesus Christ, that he's able to lift us up, that we might stand in the presence of God one day. I was thinking of that. The centurion saying, I'm not worthy. The Jewish elders judged him as worthy, so he could have said, Lord, I am deserving. I love the Jewish people, and I built you guys a synagogue, so you better get over here. (laughs) Some people might have that attitude. Lord, look what I've done for you. I'm sure, you know, it would be like saying, Lord, I built you a church. And there are people who could financially afford to build a church today. But this man realized even the great gifts that he gave by building a synagogue and the love that he showed to the Jewish people, probably by many other things that he had done for them, he said, I am not worthy. And we pick up in verse 7, 7 and 8. But say the word, my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion, a centurion soldier was over a hundred men. And uh, having men under him, he was a man who was under authority. He had his role in the Roman military. He had his place in the Roman military. He had officers over him, but he also had officers and soldiers beneath him. And he could speak the word. He could command. And they would come, they would go, they would do that which he asked. And so he was a man who understood authority. And he also recognized that Jesus was under the authority of God. And that Jesus also, being under the authority of God, could speak the word. He didn't have to come and touch the servant, didn't have to come and say words over the servant. He said, even where you're at, Lord, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. In John 5, 36, the word tells us, Jesus speaking, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And this centurion, a God-fearer, but not of the nation of Israel, had already perceived that Jesus was a man sent from God. We need to never forget that the great condition, great commission, it could be a condition for us sometimes, but the great commission does not begin with the words, go therefore, but with the words, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. All authority given to me. Go therefore and make disciples because of the authority that Jesus has received from the Father. And this centurion understood these things. Those who recognize Jesus' authority, we find that we're in good company, both past, present, and future. So 9 and 10, when all, when Jesus heard these words, he marveled at him. He turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house 
found the servant well who had been sick. So you read Luke's account, Jesus never even stepped in the centurion's house, never even saw the servant who was sick. But the centurion kept sending people to Jesus. He first sent the Jewish elders, and then he sent friends who were there. And Jesus apparently spoke the word, although we don't read about him speaking the word. He spoke the word, and the servant was healed. And the people were able to witness this great miracle of Christ. Jesus marveled of this man's great faith. He saw it as a greater faith than anyone in Israel at that time. Only twice in Scripture do we read of Jesus marveling. Here with the centurion soldier, he said, Lord, you don't even have, you don't have to come. All you have to do is speak the word. And Jesus marveled and said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. The other place where Jesus marveled, he marveled at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth who had rejected him, tried to kill him. And because of their unbelief, Mark 6, 6 tells us that he could not do any mighty works there except that he laid a hand his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So only twice in the Gospels do we read of Jesus marveling. Once was because of a man's great faith. And this man wasn't even of the nation of Israel. And those who were of the nation of Israel, he marveled of their great unbelief. And the people that should have known better. And then one other time that Jesus referred to the great faith of an individual the second time, it wasn't as an Israeli. It was a woman from Tyre and Sidon. She was from that region, a Canaanite woman who cried out to the Lord. This is the woman who would cry out to Jesus about the little dogs eating the crumb. <coughs> Singing wipes me out sometimes. So no, my voice isn't changing. Sounded like it. Crumbs. I felt it coming, but I thought I could get through the word. <clears throat> Let's just, we got to pause. So this is the woman who responded to the Lord when asking that he would cast out demons in her daughter. Yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus responded in Matthew, you find the account in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. But he responded to this woman, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Twice Jesus marveled, according to the Gospels. Once he marveled because of a uh, Gentiles' great faith, once he marveled because of Jewish people's lack of faith. Twice he talked about great faith in the Gospels, and they were both Gentile people that he referred to when he talked about this great faith. So Matthew 8.13 kind of gives a sense that the centurion was in the presence of Jesus where he responded, go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that very hour. I believe we put the two Gospels together. Matthew just left out the friend's account and kind of make it read as if Jesus had this interaction with the centurion. But when we lay it beside Luke's Gospel, we discover that the centurion never even left his home, but always sent word to Jesus through his friends. But it really teaches us that great faith can be found in the most unlikely people. That's why I think we need, need to never discredit anyone when it talks about walking in faith and trust. It can be found in the most unlikely people. It might be a child. It might be someone who is of great age. It might be someone who is somewhere in between those two points in life. But great faith can be found in the most unlikely people. We need to never forget that. We next read of Jesus' compassionate touch. In Luke 7, 11 through 17, he's now in the city of Nain. 
Luke 11. Now it came, it happened the next day after, so the very next day, he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. So the word name means green pastures or lovely. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, four miles uh, from Tabor. And we think, in our head, we think, well, a day's journey was like 10 miles, 25 miles. That's a long way to go. The next day, you got to remember, there's the Sea of Galilee right there. And basically, you have Capernaum to the northeast, just a little bit to the northeast. And Nain would have been southwest of there. So all you have to do is, doesn't talk about a boat ride, but that'd be the quickest way there. Uh, just take a boat ride across. So that could have been a quick passage. Uh, we traveled across the Sea of Galilee while we were there. Lily and I and the others on our trip with us. And, you know, it was we were in Tiberias in the morning. We had lunch on the other side of the Sea of Galilee that afternoon. And, you know, it wasn't an all-day affair. So we have to consider, though the distance may have been far, there was a body of water that could have made that trip quick for them, which probably was used, though not mentioned in Scripture. But Luke tells us it's the following day of the healing of the centurion soldier. And here he did an even greater miracle with many of his disciples and a very large crowd to witness it. In Matthew 18, 16, we're reminded Jesus saying, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And that comes from Deuteronomy 17, 6. And so Lord Jesus is laying testimony, witness after witness, that he is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. So as he came to the city, verses 12 through 14, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he was a young man, and he said, to, he said let me get that, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So Israel had no welfare system. And so the loss of her only son meant as a widow, she also lost that only means of support that she had. She would have been dependent upon the synagogue and the blessings of others from that time forward. There's a great crowd, so maybe it speaks that this woman had or her husband had great prominence in the community. She was dear to the people there. And seeing these things, Jesus had great compassion upon the weeping widow. Now, the people must have thought that Jesus wanted to say a few com comforting words to the Woman, but to their surprise, he said, do not weep. Now we would think, what do you mean don't cry? My husband's gone, and I just lost my only son. I have a lot of reason to cry, a lot of reason to be weeping right now. And after that, he touched the open coffin. Now, uh, technicality of the Jewish law would make, this would make Jesus unclean for seven days. But Jesus didn't worry about that. If Jesus would have came to the Gentiles' house, not because of the law, but because of traditions of the Jews, they would have deemed Jesus as being unclean because he went into a Gentile's house. Remember Peter, when he went to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, said, I have never stepped into a Gentiles house before this is the first for me so Jesus wasn't worried about these things he touched the man's coffin though technically would have caused him to be not sinful but just unclean in the sense of worship uh, they would have uh, you know wait a certain period of time for them to be clean again that they could worship God 
He wasn't worried about that. He touched the open coffin. He said to the young man, Young man, I say to you, arise. So the young man in the Koine Greek, which is the New Testament's written in, it gives the sense that word means this person was under the age of 40. So it indicates that, you know, he wasn't an old man. He was under the age of 40. But three times we read of Jesus raising someone from the dead. And each time he talks to the dead person. Here in Luke 7.14, young man, I say to you, arise. Luke 8.54, little girl, arise. John 11.43, Lazarus, come forth. From the perspective of the widow, Jairus, whose little girl this will be that will rise up in Luke 8, Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died, the crowds, who had gathered around them at the death of their loved ones, the words of Jesus may have seemed odd. However, in each of these situations, we find that Jesus' words did not go unheard to those who were in the grave. For God has dominion in all who are living, both in heaven and in hell, both on earth and in heaven. God has dominion over all these things. In Luke 20, Verses 37 and 38, we find even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. He calls the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham. He does not say the God of the dead, but the God of the living for all live to him. So Jesus speaks to the dead as if they can hear him because they can hear and they responded to his command. In Acts 10, 42, it uses this phrase, living and the dead, the living and the dead. We find it four times in the New Testament. Acts 10, 42, he commanded us to preach to the people. He testified that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ being ordained by God to be the judge of both the living and the dead. Romans 14.9 To this end, Christ died, rose, and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That Jesus Christ is Lord of both the dead and the living. Second uh, Timothy 4.1 I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. Once again, Jesus being the judge of the living and the dead. And then we find 1 Peter 4, 5, they will give account to him who is already, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is ready. It's like, Father, just let me know when. And we'll get the second coming on the road here. I think it's getting shaped up today. But I say to you today that it is better to answer Jesus' call today while we are living on this earth than to stand before him, before his judgment when we are in the grave. Remember, he is the judge of both the living and the dead. So the people saw this, heard the words of Jesus, saw what had taken place, 15 through 17. So he who was dead sat up, began to speak, Mama? I'm just trying to think of what his first words might have been. And he presented him to his mother. Jesus gave her son back to her. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited us. In verse 17, this report went about him throughout all Judea and the surrounding regions. So Jesus presented the widow's son back to her alive. Fear came upon all the people who had witnessed this event. They glorified God and they sent word about this event throughout all the surrounding region, all the way into Judea. It'd be like us saying, all the way into Lake County, Illinois, the region of Judea. And they were not in Judea at the time this took place. So 
uh, it would be like two different counties. And they all heard about it in the first county, and everybody in the next county south of them also heard about it. So first they said, a great prophet is among us. This was a prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. The prophecy is longer than this. But the question was, how do we know that there's a true prophet of God? The answer is this, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them, verse 18, a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So this is just like Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18. Those two verses should be starred in your Bible. This is prophetically speaking about Jesus Christ the prophet. So when they refer to the prophet, they're referring to passages like Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. So great prophet has arisen up among us. And second, the people testify God has visited his people. And that's true. Luke 1, 68 and 69. Blessed is the God of Israel. This was at the birth of Jesus Christ. Blessed prior to his birth, actually. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So that was spoken even before his birth. Blessed is the God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. And yet Luke 19.44 tells us they did not know the time of their visitation. Yes, Christ had visited his people. They didn't recognize it. Most of them did not realize that this great prophet was God incarnate. Even so, this miracle was reported throughout all the region and the region just south of them in Judea. We should never forget in John 1.14 that the word of God tells us the word of flesh The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the widow's heart that had been broken over the death of her son was now revived when her son was given back to her alive. And thankfully, Jesus loves to touch and to heal and to save those who are broken. In Psalm 34, 18, the psalmist says, The Lord is near those who have a broken heart and saves such with a contrite spirit. And Jesus is still calling the spiritually dead to arise. Three times in the gospel, Jesus speaks to those who had just died, and Lazarus being in the grave for four days. And the first two, you might, they might argue that they weren't really dead. But Lazarus had been buried for a while. In fact, when he told them to roll away the stone, in the old King James, I love it, by now, Lord, he stinketh. You don't want to do that, Lord. It's not going to smell too pretty in there. So he took away any doubt that he could speak to the dead and bring forth life. Know that the Lord still can speak life into our hearts this day. And finally, we have a questioning believer. And here we have, we had the unlikely great faith of a Gentile. And now we have one of the greatest servants. And Jesus would deem as the greatest prophet wondering about Jesus. This actually gives me hope. But let's look at the accounts. It's found in Luke 7, verses 18 through 23. It actually goes further than this, but because of time, I'm going to be nice to you, and we'll just cut it off at 23 and pick up next week in verse 24. So are you the coming one? This is the question, verses 18 through 21. The disciples of John, John the Baptist, that is, reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, 
sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. So John, whom Jesus deemed as the greatest prophet, the one who had that unique birth that was prophesied over by Gabriel, filled with the Spirit while he was in his mother's womb, born to two parents that were too old to even have children, had that unique position to introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who baptized Jesus, even with all these things working in John's behalf, his being imprisoned by Herod the Tetrarch caused him to question Jesus' Messiahship. In John's defense, he, along with many of the Jews of Jesus' day, they were looking for the Messiah of the second coming and not the first coming. John was thinking, what am I sitting in prison for, Lord? Let's get on with this thing. And then while he was sitting there, he's wondering, was I right? Are you the one? Did I get it right when I said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? So even John began to question his faith. The Word of God tells us about the coming of Jesus Christ, His second coming. And this was what was on the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, execute judgment and righteousness on the earth in his day. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safe, safety. Now, this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's what was on the Jewish people's mind. They were looking for the Messiah of the second coming and not the Messiah of the first coming. The difference at the first coming, Jesus came to offer his life upon the cross through his death, burial and resurrection. He paid the price of our sin. At the second coming, he comes as the victorious king where he will rule this world in righteousness. So having someone as great as John the Baptist question Jesus' Messiahship, well, that gives me comfort. I've never questioned whether Jesus is the Messiah, whether Jesus is who he says he is, claims to be in Scripture. I've never questioned that. I have questioned my own salvation at times. So we can all be a questioning type John the Baptist, we might have questions for Jesus at times ourselves. So after John's disciple relayed the question of John to Jesus, apparently Jesus didn't even answer them. He just started healing people, touching people, doing the works of Christ. For about an hour, it seems like Jesus just started working in people's lives. He healed those who had infirmities, those with afflictions, evil spirits, caused the blind to see. Are you the coming one was the question. That is a messianic title. Are you the coming one? We get one of those. I gave you many to choose from. Actually, four. I'll read one of these. But I gave you four that you could choose from as far as Messianic prophecies concerning Jesus. The very first prophecy in the Bible is found in Genesis 3.15. Another prophecy concerning the nation of Israel and Abraham, Genesis 12.3. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 and 16, speaks about Jesus coming from the house of David. But Genesis 49.10 tells us that Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah, saying, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. These are only four verses that speak about the 330 prophecies that foretold of Jesus' first coming. Are you the coming one? And Jesus fulfilled all 330 of those prophecies. 
So Jesus answered after doing a number of miracles, touching a number of people. He said to John's disciples, he looked around, it's like, you guys still here? Go tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor give the gospel or have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Instead of telling John, yeah, I'm him, I'm the one, I am the coming one. He showed John through the works that he did. Jesus testified in John 10:25, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Later, he said in John 10, 37 and 38, if I do not do the works of my, of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Through his works, he answered the question, I am the coming one. The works that he proclaimed from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, but reading from Luke 4 verses 18 and 19, Jesus covered all these things when he said to John's disciples, tell John what you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor has the gospel preached to them. John, Jesus proclaimed there in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus answered the question by doing. For John... It had been well over a year since he had said, I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God, John 1, 34. But after being arrested and imprisoned, he began to wonder if his testimony concerning Jesus was true. Had he misread or misunderstood the signs? And though John had questions, he sought the answer from the right person. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we likewise look to Jesus, the Lamb of God. So like John the Baptist, we may struggle with timing of the Lord's prophetic events. Is Jesus, is he coming today? Is it next week or is it next year? I have to tell you, October and the fall feast days of the Jewish people are always pointing to the Feast of Trumpets and the Lord's coming again this is like for prophecy people, they love this month. They're always anticipating the Lord's coming, often during the month of October. I've been around the church for a while, so I know that this is a repetitive thing. Is he coming this year, next year, 10 years from now? We can't know that answer. We are, though, to live in expectation of his soon return. Jesus actually said in Luke 21, 28, when you see these things begin to happen, well, what things, John, possibly could you be talking about? Wars, rumors of wars. Is that going on at all today? There was a bridge blown up in uh, Russia, Crimea, the only bridge that gave access to that island uh, was blown up yesterday, last night, while we were sleeping. So they had their pipelines blown up. Of course, the United States will say the Russians did it to themselves. They're shooting themselves in their own foot. That's what they like to do. Probably not. But wars, rumors of wars, pestilence. Any pestilence? <coughs> COVID. Um, been around. Famines. I shopped for men's breakfast, and I told Lily I walked around Sam's Club in shock. She does the grocery shopping, so I don't see the prices. I just hear about it when she comes back from the store. I saw them on Friday. It's like, boys, you're not getting bacon this week. We can't afford bacon anymore. 
When you see these things begin to happen, Luke 21, 28, look, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So take courage. Like the great faith of the centurion soldier, knowing that Jesus can speak the word and our loved ones and friends can be healed. Never forget that he's not restricted by time or space or even by heaven. I would say his being in heaven means that he can do even greater works on this earth. Take courage knowing that Jesus can still touch and raise the dead, speak to the dead, that life will come back into them, especially when talking about those who do not know Jesus as their Savior. At the word of Jesus, people can be saved. And though we may have questions like John the Baptist, we have God's written word showing us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I've discovered that we each can have these seasons in our life. We can have a season of great faith, of weakened faith, or even seasons of no faith. But no matter where we might find ourselves, may we be encouraged knowing that Jesus has fulfilled all the prophetic words spoken of him at his first coming 330 prophecies regarding his first coming. There's over 500 regarding his second coming. Many of these being fulfilled, have been fulfilled, will be fulfilled at his second coming. It should give us confidence to continue to fight the good fight of faith, even though we don't understand everything in God's prophetic timetable. But we need to be a people who are willing to believe, to receive, to grow and to go to share our faith with others in this world. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the answer. And as we prepare our hearts in this last song of worship, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us today, Lord, in the hearing of my voice. It could be on radio, it could be through video, it could be a later time, it could be live here in our church today. We might find ourselves somewhere in between these three individuals, the centurion soldier, the widow woman, John the Baptist. Their faith levels, Lord, were at three different places when you interacted with each of them. And yet, Lord, you were willing to work in each of their lives. You were willing to meet their specific need that they had. And I believe, Lord, you're willing to meet our needs. Our faith level, Lord, could be at a number of different places. But, Lord, we ask that you would work. And we are reminded, Lord, of your own words. All we need is faith as little as a mustard seed for you to move mountains. So whether our faith is great or small, Lord, it's faith. So, Lord, please work in our hearts this day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.